0: have felt really intense like can i survive this you know can we endure this and i always have a sense of excitement when things get super 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 hard because that means we're about to witness the birth of something wonderful so
1: hello and welcome to agnes scott college's podcast journeys to leadership where we explore the paths of inspiring women leaders from around the globe I'm Leo Kadiazak, President of Agnes Scott, and the host of this podcast. I hope that our guest stories not only encourage you, our listeners and leaders of today and tomorrow, but they also inspire you as you take the next steps in your own journey. Today's guest founded the Tahiri Justice Center, where she served as a Chief Executive Officer for over 20 years. She has led the organization in its service to over 30,000 women and girls while promoting the further development of law to protect women. She has received numerous honors for her work, including being named one of the 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs of 2012 by Goldman Sachs and one of the 150 Fearless Women in the World by Newsweek magazine, Daily Beast. She also received the 2008 Excellence and Chief Executive Leadership Award from the Center for Nonprofit Achievement. She's appeared in numerous news outlets, including CNN, Fox News, NPR, PBS, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. She is a frequent lecturer and has given speeches at the United Nations, Women in the World Summit, TEDx, in other venues, including academic and community settings. She served as an attorney at the law firm of Arnold and & Porter and as an attorney advisor at the U.S. Department of Justice Board of Immigration Appeals. She received her B.A. in political science and anthropology from Agnes Scott College and her J.D. and master's in international relations from American University. Our guest has been a powerful influence and an active leader in creating change for women around the world. Please join me in welcoming Layli Miller-Moreau. Welcome to Journeys to Leadership. We are so thrilled to have you join us on the show. On our show, we know that leadership doesn't just happen. It's a journey. During our time together today, we want to explore your journey, the ups, downs, surprises, all of it well, as much of it as we can get into today's segment. So let's just jump right in. Can you tell our listeners where you grew up and what it was like to be part of your family?
0: Um, I grew up in Georgia. I grew up right outside of Atlanta and Roswell and then later Alpharetta. Um, I think I was really blessed to have a family that was dedicated to issues of social justice and civil rights, particularly around racial justice from the earliest days that I can remember. um, I always had a very uh, diverse group of friends. My parents were always helping me recognize my privilege, be able to be empathetic. I had authentic and deep friendships with people who had very different experiences from myself. Um, Particularly my mother really modeled commitment to civil rights. She was on the Martin Luther King Federal Holiday Commission, and she was very close friends with Coretta Scott King. So I grew up with all of those influences.
1: So you already answered my question about where you got your passion for justice, but tell us how you decided to become a lawyer.
0: So I did know that I was interested in justice issues. I knew I cared deeply about civil rights, um, issues relating to social action, but i didn't know how to express that i wasn't really sure what the career would be when i was at agnes scott i had the opportunity to work for the martin luther king center i also interned for the carter center for human rights in atlanta and both of those experiences deepened my commitment to human rights civil rights issues also on campus i was co-founder along with another student named daria who's now a lawyer as well Um, We co-founded something called the Racism Free Zone, and it was a club on Agnes Scott's campus dedicated to addressing issues of race. So I think, you know, being at Agnes Scott allowed me to really incubate my passion for civil rights and social justice issues. But it wasn't until I had a conversation with my anthropology professor, Dr. Martha Reese, where she told me she thought i'd be a good lawyer (laughs) and it was her idea that i go to law school it had not crossed my mind i dare say i had like a negative um almost resentful view of lawyers i had not seen lawyers be productive forces for change i kind of saw them as um maybe even creating conflict in some situations i had seen them in the private sector that kind of thing so it wasn't something that was obvious to me um but she convinced me to go to law school so that I had a legal background and I had the expertise to argue the issues I cared about. But even then when I entered law school, I never intended to be a real lawyer. I thought we had too many in the world pretty much, but I did want to have the law degree as background. Um, but then that changed as well when I had experiences in law school that helped me appreciate what a lawyer really can do to protect people and to change the law.
1: Can you tell us a little more about that? Because you didn't have a linear path to what you're doing today. Yes, being a lawyer was a part of it. But what you decided to do in practicing law initially was a little different from where you then are today.
0: Yeah, when I went to law school, I, I actually did a joint master's in law degree. The master's was in international relations. And you know, Like I said before, I really just thought, you know, I'll never take the bar, I'll never go into a courtroom, I'll just have this understanding of the law so that I can better um, advocate on issues of human rights and civil rights. But then when I was in law school, I had the honor of representing a young woman who was from Togo in West Africa who was fleeing female genital mutilation as well as a forced polygamous child marriage. And when I represented her, which involved being in court, being her lawyer and writing briefs and doing all of those frontline things that lawyers do, I realized that there was actually incredible and maybe even better capacity to make real change in the lives of real humans and in real structures, institutions, and laws. So uh, the work I had been doing before at the Carter Center and the um, Martin Luther King Center was raising noise You know, that work was about uh, being objecting, essentially, and trying to educate people, trying to let people know what was wrong. But frankly, it wasn't very solution-oriented. And what I realized was that as a lawyer, you could rewrite the law. You could actually change the legal precedent. And more importantly, when there was a real human in front of you, you could bring them relief, protection, and help them rebuild dignity in their lives so that shifted my thinking from what was more like an almost an academic or ivory tower like advocacy branch of human rights and civil rights to more of a frontline on the ground version of it but then it's also true that even after i made that decision um, i ended up doing things i didn't intend to do i, I wanted to be an immigration lawyer um, I ended up being offered a position by a large corporate firm, and I, I really hated corporate firms. I mean, I, I I didn't like the idea of being a lawyer to begin with, but corporate firms to me was like the belly of the beast. But, but they approached me about being able to do most of my work on a pro bono basis. And I thought, wait a minute, you're going to pay me an overinflated corporate <laughs> attorney's salary and you're gonna let me use the firm's resource, which it turned out to be millions and millions of dollars over a period of a number of years to represent for free people who can't afford a lawyer and to help change the law. And I thought, wow, this is a side of the law I didn't know about. (laughs) And So I ended up doing that for about four and a half years and then went full-time to the Tahirih Justice Center to help grow that organization as a legal defense and advocacy organization for refugee and immigrant women.
1: So, the work you did on a pro bono basis and then subsequently on a policy basis requires a great deal of emotion and there must be times that you don't win. How do you deal with that? Well, I think for me there are a
0: few things going on that help me deal with that. I have a very supportive husband. I'm so grateful for. It's hard for him to hear the stories of our clients. He has a very sensitive heart. He'll start crying when I tell him the stories of our clients, um, but he is so supportive. He believes what I'm doing is important. That has been really critical because there have been times when I thought maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And he was able to convince me that I should. And, and I really am grateful for that. Um, my faith is very important. The Baha'i faith has always given me um, both the view that this work is important, that justice is important, equality of women and men is important, eliminating racism is important. These are all principles in the Baha'i faith. But then also the Baha'i faith gave me a long view that I think was really critical. There's an analogy, particularly in the Baha'i writings about social change, which has been very important for me. The analogy is that humankind evolves and humankind does progress. And this is just the as it is with nature and everything organic and all of us as individuals, it's also true as a collective society. And so we have this process of evolution and growth, but the process of growth is not linear necessarily. It's not completely smooth. It's marked by a crisis and victory and victory the born from crisis. And, you know, this, this very, very difficult process, but there's an analogy about birth, which I find really, really powerful. And it's, The idea that, you know, when a woman is giving birth, when something beautiful is about to be born and a new life is about to be created, what leads up to that can be beautiful and peaceful and there's incubation that's like long over a period of time, but then there is a moment when it gets messy, it gets very painful, it gets bloody actually, it gets, you know, there's blood, sweat, tears, all of that, you know. But when you realize you're going into labor when you have this view of the longer um timeline horizon and the longer process what you know is actually the more frequent the pain is the more intense the pain is the closer you are to the birth of something wonderful that was really important because there have been moments and i dare say for all of us in the last two years in particular where things have felt really intense, like, can I survive this? You know, can we endure this? And I always have a sense of excitement when things get super, super, super hard, because that means we're about to witness the birth of something wonderful. So for me, that spiritual perspective rooted in the Baha'i
1: faith has been really critical. You mentioned that your husband is a sensitive soul, and he would cry when you told him about some of the stories. I think some of the people that go into law have the same experience. They think they are going to help people but then find themselves overwhelmed. Do you have any recommendations for those individuals?
0: I think that's really important and and you know all of us have to know ourselves and know our strengths, our weaknesses, our tolerances, our boundaries, all of these things. And also we don't know until we know, you know, until we've experienced that. But I would say that I have seen staff become traumatized. We have had staff with secondary post-traumatic stress disorder. We've had staff who have panic attacks as they're entering the courtroom. You know, my husband could never do what I do. And and there are a number of other people who can't either. And so we need people who play lots of different roles in... The justice battlefield, as you will, you know, we need people who are very heads down, writing really important, almost academic-like articles and briefs to make different arguments. We need people who can sit in a room in front of a 12-year-old and hear her story of being gang-raped for five hours straight. We need those people, and and we need other people. Not everyone is cut out for exactly the same thing. You know, I have a pretty high threshold for. and maybe I've been conditioned over the years as well, there isn't a lot that surprises me. Um, I'm not emotionally phased by a lot just because I've heard of so many really difficult things. Um, but I, I also, I have limits <laughs> and mine have to do with children. God bless those who work in child abuse and child sexual abuse, because that's my limit. I start to have dreams I can't, or nightmares, really. Um, I can't sleep. My children's faces keep getting transposed onto the bodies of my clients. I know I become mentally, I start to lose my capacity to think clearly when it involves children. So I can tolerate a lot, but I also have limits. And God bless the people who are able to do that. But I think we just have to listen to our hearts. You know, sometimes we can do it also for a period of time, but not for too long. Sometimes we get jaded and cynical and that's not good for anyone you know you can become too desensitized and that's important i think also different people have different constitutions for the fight so one is a a constitution for hearing trauma that's one thing the other is one's constitution for the fight and I, i think from a very early age i was always energized by challenge you know if somebody kind of said you can't do something I'd be like oh no you did not just say that and I have a real strong like for again for better or for worse I have, that's my inclination so you come at me and I'm like oh I roll up my sleeves <laughs> I'm thinking oh let's do this okay particularly if you're coming at someone else who I care about I kind of have a instinct around redirecting that energy towards me fight with someone your own size I'm right here you know and I, I do derive energy from that Um, And there are other people who don't, who really, really don't. Um, And I remember working in the law firm and, you know, I watched particularly white men who I worked with get a lot of energy from fights I thought were really stupid, like over document production and, you know, different kinds of things. And I thought, yeah, that I do not care about. I would never roll up my sleeves about document production. but, But these issues I do care about and I will roll up my sleeves.
1: Let's talk about that a little bit about the difference of being a female attorney did you see that it is as an advantage disadvantage is it different
0: I think it's both I think I think there can be disadvantages but I think there can be advantages as well and you know, and I should say I felt really lucky I, I worked at a law firm it's called Arnold and Porter it's a big corporate firm um, but it cared deeply about um, women's involvement. I mean, they had a daycare facility inside the firm. They had pumping stations. You know, anytime the Women's Affinity Group wanted to do anything, they, they poured money and said, okay, do it. There was a lot of uh, effort to retain women. Um, I never faced sexual harassment. I, I didn't know if I faced sexual discrimination. I think sometimes that happens, we don't know it, but I didn't know about it. So I didn't have those kinds of overt experiences. But what I experienced was what I'll call structural sexism in the legal profession. And basically the long hours, for example. I mean, it was great that the firm had a daycare facility that stayed open until nine o'clock, but I don't know any mom who really wanted to be there until nine o'clock. I very rarely saw daylight when I worked at the firm. I remember when I did leave and there was still daylight, I felt really guilty about that. Um, The hours are ridiculous. I think it makes it very hard to, to be a woman, to be a mother and to do that. Um, You know, I think there are advantages as well. I mean, I I felt like when I spoke, men listened more. They are, they spoke over each other more than they spoke over me. And I noticed that in the room. Um, And then sometimes, you know, they didn't hear me well, or they would repeat what I said. I don't know. I I think it was complicated, essentially. Um, But I think there are ways as women lawyers, we can have advantage, even as we also have
1: disadvantage. When you talk about this discrimination, is it in a corporate environment or in a not-for-profit environment? It was more problematic
0: in the nonprofit environment. And the reason was our clients didn't believe we could help them. Many of them came from sexist cultures. And when they saw particularly young women who showed up as their lawyers, we had a lot to prove with our clients, to show them that we were qualified, we were smart, we would be heard by the court, we would be respected, and we could help them. And we had a number of clients who refused to be represented. I had clients who would say to me, what can you possibly do to help me? You're this young girl, is what they would say. And so I actually found for our, cl- it was harder <laughs> to get the credibility of our clients.
1: That's a fascinating perspective. Not many people have indicated that. People think that the corporate world must be more difficult.
0: Yeah, clients who are facing themselves gender-based persecution are not sure another woman can help them and and want to see a man in their court. Um, So, And then there were other instances, particularly with intimate violence, when they wanted to have a woman who they could talk to. So it it wasn't monolithic, of course, um, but that was also sometimes a challenge.
1: As you think about the future, what is success for you?
0: For me, success is measured by the positive impact I can have for others. Um, And that's the measure of success.
1: That's such a wonderful way to describe success. Are there things that surprise you about yourself?
0: I mean, I learned something new about myself almost on a daily basis. I learn about my weaknesses in particular <laughs> on a daily basis. You know, I think my surprise is often derived from feeling like, oh, I thought I could handle that, but apparently I can't. Or I thought I knew the answer to that, and it's so clear to me that I don't. I, I think I am constantly humbled by what I don't know and what I need to learn. And every day there's a, like an, a, a glimmer of surprise <laughs> where I thought, I thought I did that before. Or, I, I thought I knew that. Um, yeah, I think everything that's happened has been a surprise. I hadn't anticipated the Tahari Justice Center's growth or even uh, my professional direction as it's taken it.
1: You are such a wonderful public speaker. We were delighted to have you as a commencement speaker. But our students have asked us, what has given you the confidence to speak publicly?
0: I think I had a practice from a young age in the Baha'i community. I gave speeches um, when I was 12 years old, 13 years old. I think practice helps with that. Um, I did. I do a lot of speaking in the mirror, <laughs> and speaking in the mirror helps, you know, it's that practice. Um, my father was a professional public speaker. He was a management consultant. He wrote books and had to give a lot of speeches. And so he was a tough critic, you know, every time I would give a speech, um, even if I thought it went well or the audience reacted well, he would let me know mostly what I did wrong. (laughs) So I had, you know, those, those coaches and voices in my ear and in my head and then practice, I think helps.
1: Laylee, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Are there any last words of encouragement or advice that you'd like to give to our listeners?
0: You know, assuming that many of the listeners are students or um, alumni of Agnes Scott, I think that something that we are all struggling with, because, and and when I say we, okay, I'm talking about um, primarily, not all, of course, women, Um, and identifying as women who care about social justice. This is who I think about when I think of Agnes Scott (laughs) and when I think of Agnes Scott alumni who want to change the world. I never met anyone from Agnes Scott who didn't want to change the world on some level. I, I think all of us are having a real transformative moment right now around trying to connect our intent with our impact. And it's one of the hardest things to swallow because... Uh, We think our intent is good and we we hope others see it and then they don't or they assume the worst or um, our impact has not been what we had hoped and we were, in fact, less effective than we thought to be. Um, Or those who are driven by impact from a very data, very kind of um, sterile perspective and aren't looking at intent. And I'm thinking particularly of a lot of really large billionaire driven philanthropic efforts that are very impact, impact, impact driven and are not looking at the intent of those driving the work and whether their authentic intent will lead to the greatest impact. But I I think both matter and we're living at a time right now where some would want intent to be the only to matter and then some would want impact to be the only thing that matters but both really, really matter. And somehow we have to have greater coherence for us to be more effective as a society around caring about our individual intent and really authentically diving deep about our motives, our hidden motives, our unconscious biases and what's really going on around our intent, but then also at the same time be rigorous around measuring our
1: impact. But we've got to connect that better. Laylee, thank you so much for your time. To our listeners, I hope you are encouraged and inspired. Laylee Miller Moreau's journey is one of many that we can't wait to share with you. Thank you for joining us. I also want to thank our producer, Sydney Perry, for making this podcast possible. I am Leo Zack and this is Journeys to Leadership. Looking for more content? Check out Leading Everywhere, the Agnes Scott College podcast a show that shares the stories of the campus community students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.